Welcome, history lovers, to this edition of the History of Christianity. We are on part 25 today. This begins a new section in the study that we're doing. We, this is the third section we've studied so far, the first. We talked about early Christianity from the time of the end of the New Testament through the time of Constantine. The second section that we just completed was the Imperial Church, and that was the period of time from Emperor Constantine through the fall of the Roman Empire. And so we begin today the new section, the third section that we're going to discuss during this study, and that is medieval Christianity. There's a new order. Things have changed drastically. The fall of the Western Roman Empire created a number of independent kingdoms. So this unity that we had through Northern Africa, through the Eastern world, through Italy and into the Western world, that's all gone now. And we're going to see the rise and fall of a number of independent kingdoms that eventually become the nations that we are familiar with today. Each of these kingdoms would play a significant part in the history of the church. These events gave new functions and powers to two institutions, monasticism and the papacy. We haven't talked a lot about the papacy. In fact, I don't think we've talked about it at all. We have talked some about monasticism. We're going to get into that, those two a whole lot more next week. New invasions are going to come from the southeast during this time, and that's going to pose new challenges for Christianity as well. So a whole lot going on through this time. We'll look now to these barbarian kingdoms that have come into play. After a period of wandering, each of the major invading barbarian bodies settled in a portion of the empire. Most of these groups desired to come into the Roman Empire and kind of take their place there. Now, some of them had particular areas they wanted to go to and they made a point to go to. Some kind of got pushed around just because of the other groups coming in. But they all ended up settling into one particular area. First, we'll talk about the Vandals. The Vandals crossed the Rhine in AD 407. And they wandered across Western Europe. They moved on back across, taking full control of Northern Africa. They ended up in Italy as well. The Vandals were Aryan. So if you'll remember from last week, we just really, really brief, briefly talked about this problem. The area that these groups came from had been evangelized. There had been missionaries to these areas, but they largely had gone out during the time when Arianism was in full control. So that's all they'd ever known, and that's what they were. So they brought division, particularly to the church in North Africa as they took over that area. After almost a century of there being very much strife in the church in Northern Africa, these Vandals actually were the, the type of Arians that wanted to persecute the Orthodox, caused them a lot of problems there. It took about a century, but almost a century later, the Vandals were conquered by the Byzantine Empire, which is what was left over from the Roman Empire, the eastern portion that still survived after the fall of the western part. Now let's look at the Visigoths. This group moved through Rome in AD 410, and they ended up in Spain, where they ruled until early in the 8th century. The Visigoths were also Arian. Again, they, they were one of these groups that had been brought into Christianity because of the Arian missionaries. But they didn't persecute the Orthodox in their territory as severely as the Vandals did in theirs. So there wasn't a lot of persecution. They kind of got along okay. Then in AD 589, the Visigoth king Ricaret converted to Nicene Orthodoxy. And that brought about the end of Arianism in their territory. So the Visigoths, because of this king coming into 
the Orthodox faith, they abandoned Arianism in 589 and took on with the Orthodox Church. The most important Christian leader of, of the Visigothic kingdom was Isidore of Seville. He preserved much of the ancient culture in his book, Etymologies. It becomes very important through this period of time, these sources of having something of the ancient knowledge, the ancient culture, what they had learned in antiquity that had been destroyed now by these invading groups coming in. Having that knowledge preserved was very important. There was more than one place that that happened. We'll talk about more later. What you'll find from this period of time, this medieval time, is they did have these preservation of ancient knowledge, but there was not any capacity to build on it or to add on it. It was just preserved. They didn't really understand it that well. It wasn't necessarily practical knowledge, although some of it was used, but it was the preservation of it. And that is very important that it was preserved, but it didn't really get expanded on during this time. However, the important part is that it wasn't totally lost. It was preserved, and this is one of the people that helped to do that. Then in AD 711, the Muslims invaded Spain and put an end to Visigothic rule. So they were there just for a short period of time, and then these Muslims came in and moved them on out. During most of the 5th century, Gaul was divided between the Burgundians, who were Arians, and the Franks, who were pagans. The Burgundians did not persecute the Orthodox, so this was another Arian group. They had been brought on by the Arian missionaries, but they didn't persecute the Orthodox either. And then in AD 516, King Sigismund converted to Orthodoxy, and soon the kingdom abandoned Arianism altogether. The Franks, whose country became known as France, you probably know that from your history, were at first a collection of unruly tribes. They were independent, they were kind of together, they tolerated each other, they coexisted, but they had independence. And so there wasn't much structural organization at first. But eventually a measure of unity was brought by the Merovingian dynasty. Another name that you might remember from history for some of you that really enjoyed it, but then for others that didn't, maybe that brings some chills down your back, I don't know. but. That dynasty helped to kind of bring a little bit of unity. Clovis, who was the greatest of the Merovingian line, was married to a Christian Burgundian princess. And on the eve of an important battle, he promised her that he would convert to Christianity if his wife's God gave him victory. So you look at this, and it kind of reminds you a little bit of Constantine. He had sort of the same thing. He put Christian symbols on his troops as they went out to an important battle and basically promised if God gave him the victory that he would become Christian. So again, this kind of this idea of God, you give me what I need and then I'm, I'm going to come on and be with you. And it happens again here because that battle was won. And on Christmas Day, A.D. 496, Clovis was baptized. And then soon after that, just like with Constantine, uh, many of the Franks, in fact, most of them joined him in converting. So here was a place where paganism continued on. It wasn't an area with the Franks that had been evangelized, but they now have come into Christianity. We see this happening uh, with all of these groups as they go forward. In AD 534, the Burgundians were conquered by the Franks and the whole region was united. So no more Burgundians there. It's all one group now. 
And throughout this time, the role of the church was compromised, often seeing secular leaders taking key roles and making important decisions for the church. Eventually, Charlemagne would put an end to these practices. If you know anything about world history at all, I know you know that name, Charlemagne. He's going to play a real big, important part in all of this, and we'll get to him later on. But the thing you need to know about this, in this particular area, we've talked a little bit about that struggle between the separation of church and state and how for some places it seems that the state took too much power over the church and others. And definitely as we go forward in this time period, the church starts to exert too much power over the state. Well, this is one of those places where the state was taking too much power over the church. They were definitely interfering in the church. They were helping with or demanding a say in who the leaders were, who the bishops would be. They even set some of their own rulers up, some of their own leadership from the government into the church. So it was not an independent deal for the church at all. They were definitely being heavily pressured and put in an improper position by the state in this instance. So that took place there. Let's talk about Great Britain. Great Britain had never been entirely under Roman rule. They were partially, but not all the way. They eventually weren't at all because when Roman rule was threatened on the European continent and they were having all these invading groups trying to come in and take them over, they decided, you know what, it's not going to do us any good to hold Great Britain if we lose everything else. So let's just leave Great Britain. Let's bring everybody in. We need everybody we can get to help defend us. And then, you know, later on, if things work out well, then we'll come back. Well, that didn't happen, of course. We know that. They fell. But these groups started coming in on the continent, and the legions that were in Great Britain, the Roman army, were, were withdrawn from Great Britain, and then they were left alone. And when that happened, many of the inhabitants left with them. So they, many of those just said, you know, if, we're, if this is not going to be part of the Roman Empire anymore, we don't want to be here. We want to go back with them. So they did. So that left them in a vulnerable position, and soon after that, those who remained were conquered by the Angles and the Saxons. They founded the seven kingdoms of Great Britain. Those are Kent, Essex, Sussex, East Anglia, Wessex, Northumbria, and Mercia. So the seven kingdoms of Great Britain were founded by this invading group that came in after Rome had to leave to help protect themselves from other invading groups on the main continent. This group came in and took over and they established those seven kingdoms. These invaders were all pagans. None of these came from groups that were evangelized in Christianity. But there still were people that were in the country, they didn't all leave, that remained of that earlier population who retained the Christianity of Roman times. So that Christianity wasn't completely gone, even with these pagan rulers coming in, this pagan invasion. Those that had remained there, they definitely had Christianity, so it was still there. Moving down to Ireland, Ireland had never been part of the Roman Empire at all. They didn't have anything to do with Rome. So they were independent on their own. And yet Christianity had spread to Ireland prior to the fall of the empire. And you probably know the story of why that happened or how it happened. If you don't, you at least know the name of the person that was primarily responsible for this, although he was not the only one. We know that typically in history, the great leaders we talk about 
we're hitting on the high points of what they did and and they probably were the most important but there were definitely other people involved as well you know this name of course the spread of christianity to ireland is most often attributed to saint patrick and just a, a moment to talk about his background as a young man patrick was captured in great britain by irish raiders and was brought to ireland as a slave so this is an amazing story this is a man who was who was captured he was taken from his home and he was sold into slavery in Ireland, but he was able to escape. And after he escaped, he got away. He got out of Ireland altogether. And a little ways down the road, he had a vision of God calling him back to Ireland as a missionary. Now, this is an amazing story. A person who had been unjustly brought into slavery. I guess anytime you're brought into slavery, it's unjust. But he was captured, brought in, had to serve as a slave. He's escaped. Probably the last thing he ever wanted to do was go back there. But God called him back, and while other people may not have done it, he did. He went back. And Patrick overcame various perils and was greatly successful. He had problems. You can read more about those in history. You probably remember some of those. He overcame all of that, and he was very successful in his evangelistic efforts in Ireland, and the inhabitants were baptized in droves. They left their paganism behind, and because of Patrick and others like him that were in the country as missionaries, and they came into the Christian church. Not long after that, monasteries were founded, and the learning of antiquity became one of the major interests there. The reason for that was because Ireland had never been invaded. So these Irish monasteries were able to preserve the knowledge of antiquity. They never got destroyed and got things plundered from there. They had it still. And so those nations that were a part of the former Roman Empire, they came to Ireland to those monasteries to help regain much of what had been lost to them during the invasions. So here's another place where that ancient antiquity, that knowledge has been preserved. Again, there's not people around really that know what to do with it. You can't, they don't really add on to it. They can't take the concepts and move them forward, but it's been preserved. And so if you wanted to go and learn about that, if you wanted to go and make sure you had all your information correct or, or just educate yourself on the knowledge of antiquity, this is one of the places you would go. You would go to one of those monasteries in Ireland. Well, that leads us also then now to Scotland. The Irish, after they came to Christ, they began to send missionaries to other countries, and one of the primary ones was Scotland. The most famous missionary to Scotland was Columba. Columba settled on the small island of Iona in A.D. 563. And there, Columba and several others established a monastery that became the center of missions to Scotland. Scotch-Irish Christianity had a number of differences from the Christianity of the territories in the former Roman Empire. This isn't that unusual to consider because they were largely closed off from the rest of the Western Church. And the development of things in the Western Church that happened naturally but happened with all of them doing the same stuff together and having councils and making sure that they had standards that were the same that wasn't going to happen in in this area they were closed off so there's going to be some differences for sure point to just a few of those one is that instead of being ruled by bishops, the Scotch-Irish church was under the authority of the heads of the monastic communities. These leaders in the monastic communities became the big leaders of the church. 
If you remember way back when we started talking about some of these first group of people that left to go out to the desert and kind of establish this idea of being away from everybody and establishing a monastic community, one of the reasons for that was because they were passed over for leadership. These were the ones who had survived the persecution that had taken place. They thought they should have a more important role in leadership, and they were not given that role. And as a result of that, they went away. Well, here you've got the opposite. This is what they would have liked to have seen happen. They would have liked to have seen those who had joined up with the monastic communities and had that deeper level of devotion and commitment. They would have liked to have had a place in leadership. Well, that happened here. It's unlike what happened in the rest of Western Christianity where the bishops took on that most important role of leadership. They also differed in the manner in which a number of rites should be performed, so just the way of doing things. And then a big one, the date of Easter. This is one that the early church had to settle. They didn't quite all agree on it, but they did eventually. And now here we go. Here's another group that's not agree on it, another Christian group. So that was a problem. The date of Easter is a big deal in early Christianity. That's the date that baptisms took place early on. That was the date that if you were a part of a group that wanted to become full-fledged members of the church, once you went through that three years of training, your day to be baptized and brought in was Easter. So this was a big deal. It's a big deal now, too, but it certainly was at that time, and it was not a good thing that you had a disagreement about the date of Easter. That became a point of contention, but eventually the European tradition of Christianity would win out on the British Isles over the Scotch-Irish tradition. And the reason for this is just because of the influence of those Western churches. They had the bulk of the people. They had the bulk of the history of Christianity and what had taken place on their side, and they wanted things to be standardized. It wasn't necessarily that they had a huge problem with them, things being differently or they thought it was heretical or anything like that. That wasn't the issue. It was that they all, the church wanted to always have things be done the same. They didn't want different groups doing things in different ways. They wanted it standardized. They wanted it done the same. They didn't want two different dates for Easter. They didn't want somebody ruling with bishops on the one hand and another group letting the heads of the monastic communities do it. They didn't like that. Make it uniform. Make it all the same. So the pressure from that, the desire of the Western church to have things like that done, that was eventually going to push this one way or the other, and the obvious group that had the strength was going to win out, and that was the tradition of the European countries, the European nations that had been a part of that Western Roman Empire. So eventually they did become standardized. The barbarian invasion in Italy brought a chaotic situation. You can imagine that there was a lot of attention brought to Italy because it was the head of the ancient Roman Empire, and Rome was the capital of the ancient Roman Empire. At the time that the invasions happened, of course, the capital had been moved to Constantinople, but Rome was still a big deal. And if you wanted to conquer the western part of the Roman Empire, you would have to go through Rome. So that brought a bunch of groups into Italy to create a lot of havoc there. In AD 476, Odecker, leader of the Heruli, deposed the last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus. Well, he comes in and he gets this last guy out. Now, that guy was there and he officially was a Roman emperor, but really he was kind of a puppet of these Germanic barbarian groups that came in. But if you, know, that, if you want to say the last Roman emperor in whatever capacity that would be, it would be him. And Odoacer came in and took him out. Well, not long after that, the Ostrogoths invaded Italy, and they took power for a short time. 
there's a little bit more to this story. The Byzantine Empire at first liked that this group had come in and taken power in the western part of the old Roman Empire, but eventually they didn't get along. And so the Byzantine Empire kind of went to the Ostrogoths and said, you know, it would probably be a good idea to invade, and if you wanted to do that, we'd be fine with it, and you could probably win. And so they did. So they got a little encouragement and a little help from the Byzantine Empire to come in, and they invaded Italy, and they took power for a short time, not a long time. But the Ostrogoths were Aryan, and they persecuted the older Orthodox population of Italy. So this was a bad deal again for them. They weren't liking it so much that their Nicene Orthodox Christian brothers over in the Byzantine Empire had caused this situation to happen. These Aryans were in there now. And so that wasn't a great situation for them. Well, Justinian, the ruler of the Byzantine Empire, he sent his general, Belisarius, to invade Italy. And it took them a long time. After a 20-year campaign, they got the Ostrogoths out of there. Now, their, their kingdom was put to an end. And in AD 568, the Lombards invaded northern Italy. So here's another group now. They've come in. Well, at this time, the Byzantine Empire is on its last legs. It's on the downfall. So they can't really help. In fact, they were doing everything they could to keep the Lombards from taking over their country. So by the middle of the 8th century, knowing they would not be saved by the Byzantines, their popes looked to the Frankish kingdom to form an alliance. So they looked over to France, this Frankish empire that had come in, and they had some strength, they had some armies. They said, let's get in with these guys, and they did. And that alliance would eventually lead to the crowning of Charlemagne as Emperor of the West, a major, major event in European history and also, of course, in Christian history, which we'll spend time on later on down the road. But this built the foundation of that alliance between the Orthodox Church and the Franks that would lead to the crowning of Charlemagne. So a little bit of background on that before we even talk about it later on. So what conclusions can we draw from this period of time? And we're looking at this in a very broad sense. We're going to get into way more detail later on, but, but just kind of this overall, this period, this medieval period that's been set up now. One is that from the 5th to the 8th century, Western Europe was swept by a series of invaders. This was a constant source of stress and trouble for them. You think of a group that had been under centuries of Roman leadership that had brought relative peace and unity all of that's gone now. It didn't happen overnight. It certainly happened over a long period of time, but now it's completely wiped out and it's nothing but chaos and it's nothing but groups coming in, challenging other groups, fighting throughout this 5th to 8th century. So, so that period of time is a long period of time to have a lot of chaos going on, and it was. And these invaders tried to kind of take their, time, their chance to come in and gain a piece of what they wanted to go along with the ones that had already done it. Those invaders brought chaos to the land and destroyed a lot of the learning of antiquity. So a lot of the stuff that had been learned, a lot of the knowledge, and not just the knowledge, but how to apply it and how to build on it to gain more knowledge and to get better and to, and to do more, that was gone. And it, when we look at this time, this medieval time in history, it's not thought of as being a great time of innovation and invention and learning. It's the opposite of that. It's more of a time of a lot of things didn't get done the right way. And there were crazy things that people believed. And a lot of superstition and 
just things that didn't make any sense. They, did, they didn't have even the things that they had during the Roman Empire. They weren't even able to develop. So this is a darker time in human history, and it's because of that period of time that was a great time of learning, of antiquity. That's gone now, and nobody, although much of it was preserved, nobody really understood it, and they couldn't build on it. Specifically for the church, two religious challenges arose, and that was paganism. So many of these invading groups were pagans. They were not Christians at all, so you had to deal with that. And then maybe even worse than that, actually, was the Arianism. Here we go. The church had fought off the Arians on multiple occasions just to see it rise back up. They thought they finally had it dealt with. Everybody was on the same page, and lo and behold, the seeds had been planted way away from where they lived, and other nations that they never thought would come into play, this Arianism was brought in, and then when they came to invade, they brought it right back with them. Frustrating and a, just another time of a lot of issues with the church because, as you saw, as we went through this, some of the groups of Arians were kind of okay. They didn't agree with the other, the Orthodox church, but they weren't willing to do a lot of persecuting and, and causing problems about that. But then there were some groups that did. And he, here you had Christians being persecuted again by their own. And really, since after that time of the pagan rule in, in Rome, when persecution ended from the, from the Roman government, all the rest of the time after that, up until maybe more modern times, the majority of persecution of Christians was from other Christians. And that's really sad commentary, but we're going to see that more and more as we go through this. Groups that disagreed on things that decided that they couldn't get along no matter what. Their resolution was to persecute one another, try to kill each other. And I'll prove that I'm right by I'll win a battle or I'll kill you. And that, whoever's left standing, they were the person that was right. It's sad to think that that's what this, this faith that's all about peace and love and bringing the kingdom of God here on earth has brought so much uh, of the opposite of that in this world by people that didn't live it and maybe they really wasn't even a part of it. They just, culturally they were, but they didn't really have it in their heart. They didn't seem to. And then they didn't just do it to people outside of their own group. They did it to each other as well, their own brothers and sisters. So it is a big challenge. And we see this again through Arianism coming back into in the Christian world. But eventually, both of these groups were converted to Orthodox or Catholic Christianity. So they went away. Paganism largely went away. Those pagan practices weren't held anymore. And Arianism went away, too. It, it wasn't going to survive because there were too many that had been through the fight, and they weren't letting it get back. And so Arianism went away. Paganism went away. Those two challenges that arose, the church answered the call to that, and they did uh, deal with it. And eventually, Orthodox Christianity went out. And in the process of that conversion, two institutions played a central role. I mentioned these at the beginning, monasticism and the papacy. So when we get back together next week and for the next part of this study, we're going to look at those two things. A broad view of the place of monasticism and the papacy in Christianity of this time period. Those two things take a, a much larger role. And as a result of that, they gain a whole lot more power than they ever had before. So I hope that you can join me next week, and we'll talk about, again, two topics that we'll study over the period of looking at this section of Christian history in greater detail as we go along. Thanks for joining me once again. I hope you enjoyed this time together. 
and I hope that it wasn't too boring for you. I know we got into a lot of just general world history and Western European history today, but kind of needed to set the stage of, of what these groups were and how they got into place and just to have an idea in our minds before we go forward and not having to take a lot of time to re-look at that territory. But next week we'll look more specifically at two particular areas in the church and things that really do have a lot to do with the history of the church and Christianity. So until that time, pray that you will have a blessed rest of your week. Pray that God's blessings will be on you and look forward to be with you again next week.